As you take your seats, I invite you to turn your copies of God's Holy Word back to the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah. The sermon this morning is going to come uh, from chapter 7, verses 10 through 25, which Daniel read for us moments ago, but also in connection with Isaiah 8, verses 5 through 10, which I'm about to read right now. And the reason we're holding these two passages together are because they are about that next child. And they are about the same child that that both passages are dealing with this child called Emmanuel. So last week we looked at She'er Jeshuv and This week we will look at Emmanuel. Now many of you heard that well-known part of this passage when Daniel read from Isaiah 7, that the virgin will give birth. And as he read from Matthew chapter 1 regarding the birth of Jesus Christ in connection to this, these are verses that we hear on an annual basis, um, and, and rightly we should. But what I want you to do this morning is I want you to attempt to listen as if you have not heard this passage before. Because quite often, when we rightly associate this with the birth of Christ, there there is an appropriate joy that is part of that. But what we tend to not either know or, or don't understand, is that the context of when this is given in Isaiah 7 is not joyful. And it, there is a very important context here for us that moves us into the significance of why this child is named Emmanuel. And it moves us into the significance as to why this is in association with the birth of Jesus Christ. So having already heard from Isaiah 7, let us also hear from him in Isaiah chapter 8. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently... And they rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all the channels and go over all its banks. And it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word 
but it will not stand for Emmanuel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are heavy this morning. There has been much loss this year here within this congregation. There has been much loss just this week and in the last few days. And the very sign that you have given to your people, that figure of the child that is to direct us to our hope in Christ, is the very source of much of the heaviness this week. As a child that was in the womb was lost. As a child who had reached older days was lost. As a child about to graduate high school is lost. There are parents in this congregation, Lord, and there, there are parents who, who have experienced the loss of a child. And hearing about the figure of the child as a sign of hope can be so difficult to hear when the heaviness is tied to the loss of a child. And so, Lord, I ask that within this providence of this sermon, that you would use this, Lord, to do what your text intends. And that is to magnify to us just how immense you are in contrast to how small we are. So that in the experience of our smallness and our frailty, we would entrust ourselves to your eternal power and grace. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, what Advent sets before us amongst all the many different themes is this most central theme. God is in the manger. That it is not something that should be reduced to trivial or sappy sentimentality. This is not something that is to, to give us warm fuzzies over the cuteness of the baby in the manger. It is to strike us and call to our attention that, behold, God has come near and He has chosen to come in the figure of a child. 
in fulfillment to the first promise of the gospel all the way back to Genesis 3, which has been rehearsed throughout redemptive history. That God's grace, that He is not done with His people, even though His people have rejected Him, He is not done. He is going to salvage His purposes. And He is going to do so in such an abundance of grace that it should knock our socks off. But the struggle that you and I have, or at least me, maybe maybe I've only been preaching to me these last couple of weeks, but the struggle I have is I don't typically like the means that God uses to do these things. I don't want distress. I don't want struggle. I don't want to lose one of my children. I don't always want to be put into the position of having to live by faith because sometimes trust is all that is there. I can be like Ahaz where when distress comes, especially when it's distress that I've brought onto myself, I can want to engineer and fabricate answers that help me escape distress, or at least that I think will help me escape distress. But the heart of the of Advent, the heart of Christmas, the the heart of the incarnation is that God has entered into our distress with us. God is with us. We all know that this is what this child to be named Emmanuel. We know what that name means. God with us. But what we don't always keep at the forefront of our faith is that what Isaiah 7 is, is trying to, to communicate to us as that is fulfilled in the birth of Jesus Christ is that this is not God with us in order to keep us out of distress, it is God with us who has entered into our distress with us and for us. As Daniel prayed, there is a time coming when Jesus is going to return and He is going to come at that time in the way that I wish he had come the first time. He will come in the full display 
of His eternal power and glory. And that will be, beloved, for our benefit. But in His first coming, in His first advent, He chose to come in a way in order to draw out to us that God loves to put his power and display uh, his power and his his splendor on display through what looks to be small and insignificant and frail the figure of a child. A child who has to be cared for. A child who has to be fed and nursed and changed. Part of the, the, the amazing reality of the incarnation is not simply the theological reality of God taking on flesh and becoming man. It is that He could have done that coming in the full display of His power and glory. He could have come the first time in a way that He's going to look the second time. He could have come the first time in that display of, of what we read in the book of Daniel as, as this Son of Man coming in glory. And He is going to do that. But in the first advent, He chose to come, not just taking on flesh, but coming in the form of a servant. Giving up for a time the glory that He was due. Born in poverty. Born to a family that Yes, was in the lineage of David, but that was of no significance of that day. God loves to put his power and splendor on display through what is weak, or what looks like it's weak, what looks like it's frail, what looks like it is insignificant. Because that draws out the contrast that you and I need in order to stop trusting ourselves and to look to Him. He is the one, as we read from Isaiah 57 last week, He is the High and He is the Holy. He is the Eternal. He is, he is splendorous. He is glorious. He is magnanimous. He is immense, infinite, eternal. And He has chosen to dwell with the lowly, with the humble, with the small, with the seemingly insignificant. He has come to do this because He is condescending to us in order to lead us to participate in His exaltation. 
And as you and I struggle with the sin that is still within our own hearts, and as we struggle with the sin that is in the world, right? The sin that is still operating physically within our fallen bodies that can lead to a miscarriage. The sin that is not just part of the the corruption of the physical world, but the sin of the immoral choices of a a drunk driver deciding to operate a vehicle and put others' lives in his hands. There is sin within us that, that is part of the corruption of the fallenness. There is sin within us that is part of our moral choices. And regardless of, of where that sin is coming from, the reality, beloved, is as we have sung in every song this morning, we live under this heavy load. And we are in desperate need of being freed from it and drawn into something that is not corrupted by sin. And what Advent tells us, what Isaiah tells us, is that God has chosen to accomplish that and to constrain everything that is part of this fallen, corrupted world and to constrain it to the new heavens and the new earth through what looks like it is small and weak, powerless and insignificant. This is the message that God is giving to King Ahaz. And, and through, uh, through Isaiah, he is speaking to the southern two tribes of Judah. Those who had received that covenant promise that one from David would always sit on the throne and that there would one day come uh, a son of David who would be greater than David, who would actually be righteous, and, and who would do the job of a righteous king. But right now, Judah finds themselves under the leadership of a corrupt king. One who is not like his father or his grandfather. One who is not ultimately like his father, David. He is a king like the kings who are part of the corruption of the northern ten tribes that have rejected the covenant promises of 2 Samuel 7. They have rejected the the throne of David. They have rejected the worship that takes place in Jerusalem. They have rejected these things, and they have gone off in their rebellion into their own strengths trying to accomplish things through political power, trying to accomplish things through aligning themselves with idolaters. And as we said last week, that's what's happened. The northern kingdom has teamed up with Syria. They are attacking the southern kingdom because King Ahaz has rejected their ploy to form an alliance to go against Assyria. 
Ahaz has said, no, I'm not interested in that. Not because he's a good king. Not because he's trusting in the promises. It's because he's not trusting in the promises. It's because what he is trusting in is this idea of earthly power, earthly influence. And he has said no to them. And so they have decided, well, we'll attack him, we'll remove him from the throne, and we'll introduce this new person to become king of the southern two tribes. Which, if they were successful, would completely go against God's covenant promises that one from the line of David would always sit on that throne. He is tempted through the sinfulness of his flesh, not to trust, but in, not to trust God, but instead to entrust himself to Assyria. And here in chapter seven, we're, we're told the result of what's going to happen when he does trust Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria, and we know this historically. What Ahaz does is he says, no, I'm not going to team up with you two little guys. How, 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 how are these two little nations? How are we supposed to, you know, the three of us, how would we you know, stand up to Assyria? So what does he do? He reaches out to team up with Assyria. Why would I go with, with a couple of little guys when, when I can go with the bully? It's always safer to be on the bully side. And so that's what he does. In the process, what he is doing is not just engaging in earthly wisdom, but as we're told here in chapter 7, he very specifically denies the supernatural offer and provision of God. Now, as we saw last week with Sha'ir Jashuv, he's already been shown the sign of the child. And the figure of the child named Sha'ir Jashuv is, is to be a statement to Ahaz and to Judah that a remnant will return. Well, what's it going to return from? Well, that's what we find out here in the second half of chapter 7. And ultimately, what's going to happen is because he teams up with Assyria, Assyria is going to sweep in, and they're going to defeat Syria. And they're going to sweep in to the, the northern ten tribes, and they're going to utterly and completely dismantle it. Completely. They're going to remove people. They're going to bring people in. They're going to breed the Israelites out of existence. That's what's going to happen. This is where we get the lost ten tribes from. It was God's judgment against Israel for having rejected the covenant. So Assyria is going to sweep in. But that's not going to be to Judah's salvation. Because what Tiglath-Pileser decides is, well, you know what, I've come this far. 
I've already received a bunch of gold and silver from that little, that little country Judah. I think I'll just go the extra few miles and go down there and just take all of it. Ahaz's buddy comes in and sweeps through the land as described here as a river that has overflown, overflowed its banks. And everywhere they look, the Assyrian military is there. People are being captured. Soldiers are being murdered. Wealth is being plundered. All because Ahaz decides here that rather than trust God, he's going to trust himself. Now, let's be fair. What is it that Ahaz was being told to trust in through the figure of the child, Sha'er Jeshuv? He was told to trust in some future deliverance that would come in 65 years. He wasn't being promised, if you trust me right now, then everything will be golden, you won't be touched, everything will be fine. What he says is, trust me now, Because a future deliverance is coming. And this is what you and I, this is where we come in, isn't it? We all know in this room about the promise of the future deliverance to come, especially as that is tied to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yet, you and I, on a daily basis, will find ways to try to use our ingenuity, trying to use our intellect, trying to use the the strength of our will to to engage in earthly ways to avoid distress because we don't always like the concept of a future deliverance. We want one now. And rather than wanting to wait, we, we come up with our own plans and we try to, to do things our way. And what typically happens is it just makes things worse. And this is where God's grace comes into play. Notice here that in chapter 7, God has already given this promise of a future deliverance. Ahaz didn't deserve that. The nation of Judah didn't deserve that. But yet that was the promise. Even though you have turned against me like the northern ten tribes, even though you have corrupted my worship like the northern ten tribes, though the throne of David is corrupted so that he rules and reigns like the kings of the north, though Ahaz your king has sacrificed his own son in idolatrous worship, I'm not done with you. Because I have committed myself to you. And not because you deserve it. But because I have chosen to set my love on you. And I'm not going to lose what I love. 
the grace of God and the love of God just is is overflowing in this passage in the promise of a future deliverance. But that is heightened here as God says. Look, he basically is acknowledging, yeah, that's a future deliverance, a, a remnant will return. Yes, I'm going to pare you down and make you even smaller than you are right now. I'm going to make you weaker than you are right now. Yes, I'm going to do that, but it's not going to be complete. It's not going to be total for a remnant will return. And in that future deliverance, that will be experienced by my people at that time. But ask of me, and I'll give you a sign right now. I'll give you a sign now that you can cling, that your faith can cling to as you wait for this future deliverance. But this is the whole problem. Ahaz doesn't want to walk by faith. He just wants things to be safe and secure and prosperous. Just like you and I do. He doesn't want to wait. And so he decides, rather than being honest with God, that I don't want to wait and that I don't want to walk by faith, what he says is, oh, no, no, no. Oh, I can't ask a sign of, of the Lord. Oh, that would just be wrong of me to, to put the Lord to the test like And he finds some spiritual sounding excuse for justifying his lack of wanting to walk by faith. But the Lord is not tricked. He's not caught off guard. And so he says, well, you won't ask me for one. I would have given it to you. Could have been anything. Could have been as high as heaven, could have been as deep as Sheol. Right? It's a mirrorism, taking two polar opposites to express totality. You could have asked for anything, and I would have given you a sign. But you don't want one because you don't trust me. So I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Because God is gracious. What is the sign? The sign is that, behold, someone is going to give birth, and it's going to be completely unexpected. In fact, it will be considered inappropriate. And this fruit of the womb however, will be named Emmanuel, God with us. There's a lot of debate over this text, and I'm not going to get into it here, but uh, feel free to ask me outside of here. But the two extremes that you often find in the discussion of these passages is, is the word in 714, is it virgin? And the answer is yes. Well, could it also be young woman? 
And the answer is yes. The word that is used here definitely appears in the Hebrew Old Testament as a reference to a virgin. But it is also used to express uh, the category of a young woman who would be of childbearing years that has not yet had children. She might not she might be married, she might not be married. But the point is she she's young and because she's especially because she's not married, even though she's of childbearing years and development, she shouldn't be having children. That's the point. Now, we don't know exactly how this unfolded, but we are told very clearly here in the text that this child that that Isaiah is talking about is someone who will be born in the lifetime of Ahaz. What we know is this child will, will be born before the 65 years will come about, that this child is actually going to be born at the time in which the, 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 the prophecy of judgment and destruction will be taking place. That there is a young maiden who shouldn't be having a child that is going to have one. And supposedly here, known to Isaiah or known to Ahaz. It could be a veiled way of getting at Ahaz's immorality. That maybe he does something, forces something on someone that shouldn't be receiving that kind of attention. A, a good metaphor that God uses throughout the Old Testament to describe Israel and Judah in their idolatry as he refers to them as a unfaithful woman. The point here is that this is going to be shocking. It's supposed to be attention attention grabbing. Behold is is a word that is meant to grab the attention. This is not simply, oh, well, Isaiah now is about to say something official as a prophet, so I should listen. No, by saying, behold, it's attention-grabbing. It's shocking. It's meant to get that attention and hold on to you because what is about to be said is extremely serious. It is almost as if life depends on it. And what Ahaz and Judah are told is though you won't walk with me by faith, though you are acting like the idolaters to the north, though I'm going to allow you to get what you think you want, and that is teaming up with Assyria, even though all this is going to happen, a remnant will return Because you will not go away by yourself. 
Because in the figure of the child, what we are being told here is that God will go with them. How tempting is it at times to want to reduce this concept of God being with us, reducing that to things that we consider positive. Or at times we reduce it to something that is an abstract idea. Oh, well, regardless of what's happening, God's with me. No, the idea here is that the God who is going to bring this judgment is voluntarily going to experience his own judgment with his people. Let that sink in. At a time in which they are tempted to think all is lost. How on earth, if Assyria comes in in their strength, and if they, if they are so prevalent within the land that it's like waters that have overflown, overflowed the banks, how on earth are we going to survive? And what God reminds them is as this is happening, and then later, when, when those who are worse than Babylon, or those who are worse than Assyria will come, as Babylon would come in and will deport you, you are not alone. Because I have covenanted myself to you, and I will go into that distress with you. How can we trust that, that God in the, in the midst of sure death can bring life? Do you remember the, the Spirit hovering over the darkness in the creation account in Genesis 1? Where the Spirit hovering over that darkness brings life out of nothingness brings everything that exists out of nothingness. How many times as we were looking to the figure and the hope of the child to be born, is that child coming from what appears to be a dead womb? Where Sarah, who is too old to have have children, will, will have the covenant child. As we discussed, and, and there are so many examples of, of, of a woman who has a dead womb in which that dead womb produces life. Where out, uh, as it is described, out of that dark place that was so mysterious to them in the first century, right? They didn't have 3D ultrasounds. They had no idea what was going on in there. Like men today. And yet... Out of that darkness, that, that mysterious realm that, that they had no knowledge of whatsoever, the, these dead places were, were bringing forth new life. Women who should not have been having children because of the condition of their bodies, bearing forth children of promise where the figure of the child 
was constantly being miraculously set before God's people in a way that it highlighted His immensity and got us to see our weakness and our frailty and that there is nothing better to do than to trust in Him. The one that can bring everything out of nothing. The one that can bring children out of the dead womb. The one who as the Spirit hovers over that dark place in the young woman's womb in Matthew chapter 1 brings forth the child that would be the ultimate child. That ultimate fulfillment of Genesis 3. That ultimate fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. That ultimate fulfillment of a child born from someone who should not be pregnant. As Mary, who was not yet married to Joseph. In the state, as we are told explicitly... In Matthew chapter 1, who had not known a man yet, miraculously gives forth the ultimate expression of the sign that God has given his people. Look to the figure of the child. For not just some young woman that shouldn't be having children yet, but to the actual virgin. Look to the child who is the fruit of the Spirit. For he is God with us. And beloved, what Jesus has done in that first coming is nothing less than enter into our distress, entered into our suffering, not to keep us out of it, but to protect us through it to that second coming when we will finally be free from it. And that is what Advent is about directing our hearts to the immensity of God and to the frailty of ourselves so that we would not give in to the temptation of looking at lesser things for our hope and the avoidance of distress, but that we would look to the figure of the child born in the manger, born as one who was poor and insignificant and would be eating curds in whey, which was not the diet of a king. And yet, in the figure of that child, is nothing less than God with us. Not in the abstract that God is for us, but in the concrete as God took on flesh and became man and as he took us through the distress and ultimately died for your sins and for mine 
He has been raised from the dead. And a remnant certainly has returned. And what looks like death, and what looks like the end, what looks like weak, frail, small, little nation being overrun by a bully becomes nothing less than God's means of saving his people for his glory and for our good. Beloved, this Advent, set your heart on the God who is in the manger, who has come not to save you out of distress so that you don't have to experience it anymore, but to let you see that he has experienced this distress and he has overcome it. And there is nothing that you and I will experience in this world that can change what God has accomplished in Christ by himself coming in the form of what looks to be weak and small and insignificant in order to constrain all of reality to the new heavens and the new earth. Beloved, God loves to put his power and splendor on display through what looks like weakness that will simply trust in him as we hold to the sign of the child as we wait for that child's second coming and the ultimate deliverance that he will bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so much distress continues to be the experience of your people. And yet what we have sung today, and I pray that we are clinging to by faith, is that the child of Mary, who felt our human woe, was also the king of glory. He knows our weakness, but through what looked like the frailty of being put on trial by sinful, wicked men and dying a a sinner's death on the cross is not the pathway to Sheol, but it is the pathway towards the heavenly courts and the endless day. And so, Lord, help us to set our hope truly upon this work of Christ so that when we are acutely aware of that distress, like so many of us are right now, Lord, that we would give ourselves in a fresh way to you as we cling to the sign, the figure of a child, the God-made flesh whose body and blood we have received in the sacrament to nourish us, not to shrink back, 
and not to push forward in our own strength, but to wait in the power that can only be explained as coming from you and not from us. Father, put your power and your splendor on display to this watching world through our simple trust and following you. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.